right, you guys can be seated. Kids, you can head on back to the back, third through fifth, hanging out with us. It's going to be in Luke chapter 7 this morning. Luke chapter 7. If you're a visitor with us this morning, welcome. Glad you guys are here. If you came expecting a Father's Day sermon, sorry. Uh, not really how we do things here. We kind of just, uh, just keep on trucking whenever these days come along. Mother's Day, Father's Day. Fourth of July, whatever, we just kind of keep on trucking through the book that we're in. And we are in the book of Luke, Jesus for everyone. And uh, I mean, I've said it the last couple of weeks, but I I feel like I'm just going to keep saying it over and over and over. This is what Luke keeps coming back to. This is what Luke keeps telling us uh, over and over, that Jesus is for everyone. And we will see that uh, loud and clear this morning in our our passage. Uh, And so... Uh, I'm looking forward to diving into this, and I'll just tell you, uh, just kind of give you a peek behind the curtain, my own kind of sermon prep and thinking through this. Um, I think this is a beautiful passage. I think it is great. Uh, And just as a pastor, as a preacher, I feel tremendous pressure to do it justice, that I want to be able to stand up here. I want to be able to captivate you with it. Uh, I want to be able to uh, kind of like convey what is going on here in this place, and so uh, you know, whenever I feel that kind of weight, often what that means is, man, I'm going to work hard to try to, like, find an angle to kind of, like, hook you, right? This is what, this is what you're, you're, you're taught. You want, you want to hook them right at the beginning, make sure that everybody's, like, really paying attention uh, so that they track with you through the whole thing. Here's the thing. I don't have a great hook for you this morning. I don't have a great, like, like hey, here's why you need to listen, other than to tell you that this passage is striking in its beauty. It's really a pretty simple one. Uh, you know, there's some things that we need to explain because there's some cultural things that are lost on us. But really, the message itself is pretty clear and pretty straightforward. Jesus isn't always that way. Sometimes he can be flat out confusing. Uh, sometimes you can really kind of get lost in some of the, the teachings that he's got. And he even tells you in some of his parables, the whole reason he told you that parable, he told his disciples that parable was to get them confused, which that's frustrating. But he, he says those kind of things, right? But not this one. This one is pretty straightforward. And what we're going to talk about this morning is forgiveness. At least we're going to get there and we're going to talk about forgiveness. But it strikes me as odd as I was preparing this passage that we're at the end of chapter 7 of the book of Luke. The end of chapter 7. So this is seven chapters into a book about the life of Jesus Christ. And we're just now going to talk about forgiveness. At least in any kind of like serious capacity. Just now. There are so many religious systems that exist out there that their entire theology, everything they talk about, everything that they do is built around forgiveness. Everything is about that one topic. Now, don't don't get me wrong. We're going to talk about forgiveness a lot over the course of this book. Luke spends a lot of time talking about forgiveness, but he hasn't even got there yet. And so I just think it's interesting that we can be this far along in the life of Jesus and we're just now getting to this topic. And it just kind of gives me pause to think maybe we put the emphasis in the wrong place at times. Maybe we, we, we talk about things uh, in, in kind of incomplete pictures and we talk about forgiveness absent the life and the person of Jesus. But the person of Jesus is what comes through in this story of forgiveness Today. And so hopefully you'll be able to track with me uh, on that. And, and if you like walk out of here and you say, well, I have so many other questions about forgiveness. What do we do about this situation? What do we do about that situation? 
I'm not even going to come close to answering those. You're not going to walk out of here with a full theology of forgiveness this morning. I think by the time we get to the end of the book of Luke, I think we will have talked about a lot of that stuff. But this morning, it's really pretty, uh, pretty simple. Uh, so let's dive into the text. The scene is a meal. If you were here with us on Easter, you'll remember that uh, what we talked about at the time is that the book of Luke, in the book of Luke, uh, one, one author says that Jesus is, is either uh, leaving, going to, or at a meal in almost every passage in the book of Luke. He almost builds his, his narrative around these meals, these shared uh, experiences together. That's, that's kind of that's what this is, and this one is one of the famous scenes for uh, Luke's dinner parties that we'll, we'll look at here. So Luke chapter 7, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. That's your first clue that something's up, that first little part right there. And he went into the Pharisee's house, and he reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. When it says ointment, think like perfume. Don't think like Neosporin. Think like, think, think like, a, like, a, like a perfume, something just smells really good, right? <clears throat> and when the Pharisee who had in, uh, invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering him said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Now, I'm going to leave you on that, cl- that cliffhanger here in just a second. We'll come back and we'll see what it is exactly that Jesus says to him. So b- before we hear his re- reply, we need to make sure that we have the right picture of what is happening. Because that's where the whole, whole kind of story is here, of what is happening uh, here at this place. And there's some observations, I think, that if we draw those out, we, we better see what is, is, is going on. So first things first, Jesus is at... Uh, a dinner, but not just any dinner. He's not hanging out with his disciples. Uh, as, best, as best we can tell, none of his disciples are there. Uh, the, the, they're like at their homes doing their thing. He has left, uh, left them to go out and do their thing. He is the, the solo invite to this, uh, to this dinner party out of his crew. And it is a strikingly odd place for him to be if you've been following along in the book of Luke. After all, the Pharisees have been anything but welcoming to Jesus. Right? We've seen this over and over and over. They're constantly trying to trap him, constantly like, like kind of observing when he's performing miracles, kind of observing, observing whenever he's doing things, and then like kind of whispering to themselves about who this Jesus is and what they've got to do about him. Jesus is clearly a problem for them at this point. So the fact that he would be invited to the Pharisee's house for dinner, this is not simply a matter of, Oh, this dude seems like he's getting some power. I want to get in with him. I might hitch my wagon to him. That is not what is going on here, okay? There is something else going on. Now, Luke doesn't tell us fully what is happening here, and so I'll be the first to tell you there's a little bit of speculation in here, but I think between what we have seen before uh, in Luke's gospel and what we have seen, uh, what we will see here just in the rest of this story, I think kind of backs up... uh, some of, of, of what is here. Like, you should be asking, why is this happening here? You know, one of the things that I have grown tremendously uh, appreciative of as we have gone through the book of Luke, and I just, 
it doesn't matter how many times you read something, whenever you preach through something and we work through it the way that we do, just verse by verse, story by story, what really begins to kind of come out is Luke is a really, really good storyteller. Like a really good story. Like we, we tend to read passages in isolation, right? We open it up, we read a passage, and we read it as it is. But whenever you start kind of tracing what Luke is doing, man, he is weaving together a story. And so whenever you see that Jesus is now with the Pharisees who have been his enemies all along, that should make you ask the question, what is going on here? And then whenever you pair that with, uh, like, like think about the way this is happening, right? So this is a dinner at the Pharisee's house. This is not a dinner under the cover of night. This is not a dinner like, I'll meet you in a back room, you know, at, 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 a, at a restaurant on the outskirts of town, and we can talk about this. This is at his house, likely in a courtyard that is kind of semi-public, right? Uh, so not going to be in his dining room, not going to be up in some upper room away from people. This is going to be in a very public place where this Pharisee could be seen dining with Jesus. It's, it, it makes no sense as to why it's here until you start putting together some of the, the pieces. And, and do you remember like in John chapter 3? John chapter 3, this is Jesus' famous conversation with Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, what Jesus calls him, right? That is, that is the, the famous conversation that, that Jesus has with, with Nicodemus. But do you remember how that conversation happened? Nicodemus slipped out at night under the cover of darkness so that no one would see him have this conversation with Jesus. He didn't want to be seen with Jesus because he knew what the implications were of being seen talking to this rabbi. But here you have another Pharisee who's doing it open for everyone to see. And it should tell you he's got a different motive than what Nicodemus did. I think Nicodemus had like th- this idea of maybe, maybe I've got something to learn from this guy. That is not what this Pharisee, who, who, whose name is Simon, it says here at the end of what we just read. This is not what Simon has in mind at all. The second thing that you need to, you need to see is that they are eating. So, so, so first is that they are eating dinner at all. You, you need to make that observation and figure out, can I ask the question, why does that happen? The second thing is that they are eating dinner. This isn't a, a formal dining table and a Thanksgiving dinner. It's not, it's not that at all. It, it is He's having this dinner. They're at a, a low table. You guys have probably seen this in, a, uh, in like a painting or, or, or watching a, a, like a, a period TV show or something. And, and so you got this low table. They're reclining kind of on their left elbow, likely uh, eating there so that you've got the, your, your shoulder and your, your head toward the table, your feet out away from you. That's how they are having this meal. And like I said, probably uh, outside. And it says that a woman of the city which is another way, she's a sinner, likely a well-known sinner to the town, especially to the men of the town, if you're tracking with me, right? So that's likely who this is. It says that she learned that Jesus was at this dinner, at this home of the Pharisee. So a couple of things that commentators have picked up on here. One, this woman probably already knew Jesus or had already met him at the very least, had heard his teachings. Because they didn't have to like strong arm her and say, hey, come hear this guy. You've got to hear his message. She heard Jesus was there and she went. 
So she already knew Jesus. Some have speculated, if you go back to Luke chapter 5, that maybe she was a part of that dinner that was happening in Luke chapter 5. Or maybe she was a part of the crowd that heard the sermon on the plane. Maybe she was, she was part of the crowd whenever Jesus was going around performing his miracles. Something had happened where she had heard the message of Jesus already. And, and, and that message had taken time to kind of marinate in her soul, taken time to kind of provoke her, to kind of prick her heart. And so she, was, she wasn't just like, like casually around. When she heard Jesus was there, she needed to go. And, and second, again, this is pure speculation. So if you don't think this is right, then ignore it. Uh, some commentators have suggested that the way she learned that Jesus was at the Pharisee's house is that another Pharisee told her. That another Pharisee sought her out and said, hey, I heard you were looking for Jesus. I know where he's at. I know where he's at. He's, he's over at Simon's house, and you should, you should go over there. Just knowing that she was so desperate to find him that she would then make her way over there. That, that this was not the, the innocent dinner invite of a Pharisee who wanted to know more from Jesus, but instead this was a very public trap that was set for Jesus, and she was the bait. She was the bait to go. Not the bait in some sort of like, like, like she was enticing Jesus to something, but they wanted to see what would happen if this woman that was so well known to be a sinner actually showed up at Simon's house. So I, that's at least plausible. I'm not sure if I fully buy that that's what's happening here, but it's at least plausible. It doesn't change the main thrust of the passage, but it's an interesting thing uh, to consider. And so the next thing that you need to think about, and let me just say just something about this woman too. Somewhere in like, like, like the, the, the mid-century, so like the, the, I think it's around the 1100s or something like that, a, a pope somewhere attached the name of Mary Magdalene to this woman. That is nowhere in this passage. Somehow Mary Magdalene became known kind of like, and, and maybe you, you don't know this kind of history, but maybe you have heard this. She became known as like this, this harlot, this woman of ill repute who has all of this, this baggage. and all. Scripture never gives any indication that that is who she is at all. So don't be thinking, oh, this must be Mary. Uh, there's no indication that this is Mary. This is, just a, this is just a random woman as best we can tell, right? Uh, so... So the next thing we need to think about here is the action of the woman. What happened here? She takes a vial of, uh, or, or like a flask of, of this perfume and anointed Jesus' feet and his head with this perfume. So there's a couple of things going on here, totally lost on us, that we're not going to be able to understand unless we understand the, uh, the kind of cultural things that are, that are happening. One, her action would have been standard practice at a Jewish dinner party. At least the, the foot washing part certainly would have been. Not the weeping, uh, but, but the foot washing and the perfume would have been standard. The perfume would have been kind of going above and beyond for your guests, but it would have been uh, totally understood if that had happened. Just an extra kindness. Feet were nasty. 
Feet were gross. They didn't drive anywhere. They walked everywhere that they went. And they didn't walk everywhere with, with like hiking boots on. They walked around with sandals, oftentimes open sandals. And so feet would be gross. And so whenever you're laying down to recline and you got your feet out away from you, like that stuff it was gross. And so what would happen is as you would enter into somebody's house, either you would wash your feet if it was your own home or it wasn't really like a situation where you're somebody's guest, But what would have been expected if you were a guest at a dinner party is that the host, or more than likely a servant of the host, would have been at the door in order to wash your feet. Now, this isn't like scrub them down and, you know, get out the like callous brush and like, this is not that kind of stuff, right? This isn't like a a pedicure. This is, let's just rinse your feet off. Let's not make it gross in, in, in the owner's house. And this is a kindness that we serve to you. So that's what would have been expected. It would have been customary and honorable for a host to do this. Uh, and, and, and this is what, what should have happened. At the minimum, there should have been water available for Jesus to do it himself. So the, the second thing you need to see of, of what she does is the perfume that she's using. Now, almost certainly, this perfume that she's using now on Jesus likely would have been one of her primary tools that she used in order to lure customers. If you read in Proverbs, it talks about the the scent of perfume and how perfume was was used. You know that this was a, a common thing. This would have been one of her primary tools to carry out her sin. That's exactly what this would have been. It would have aided her in, in, in her practice of sinning. So the very thing that would have been her catalyst for sin becomes the very sacrifice made in worship to Jesus. Now, it doesn't take much for us to draw a line here, to draw a connection of, of, of the symbolism of that for us today. That our own worship should often, should often, if not always, certainly at the beginning, look like this. Us laying down our idols and our pursuit of sin in the worship of Jesus. Lay those down quite literally at his feet. That's exactly what is happening here. And this scene is as scandalous as you can imagine. Like, I, I can't overstate how many like rules she is breaking here. Not, not just Jewish rules, just, just customs of the time. Let alone Jewish rules, let alone just the awkwardness of a woman with this reputation now at the feet of a rabbi. I mean, she's breaking every single like taboo that should not happen is now happening. If this Pharisee, Simon truly did not know that this woman was coming. It would have been shocking and infuriating to see this woman walk into his courtyard and interrupt his dinner party. He would have been beyond rage at this point. He would have been disgusted and angered in ways that we cannot fully understand. Like we, I don't think we can, we can, we can level up the amount. Like we can, we can conjure up in our heads the, the the level of like just insensitivities and 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 just rules that she is breaking there. Like I don't think we can we can understand fully what it is. So undignified, so over the top nature of her display, he would have been embarrassed, and he would have been shocked. 
the whole scene in its awkwardness, in its absurdity, in its, in its drama, I just don't think we can fully comprehend it without being there. Even with all the, the details that Luke gives us here. Honestly, it feels like one of Jesus' parables. Like, imagine a, a man reclining at a table and a woman walks in. Like, this feels more like it's, it's like that, like a, a made-up story. But this is really happening here. And Simon is quick to offer his assessment. Like he was waiting for this moment to show up. He is quick to offer his assessment of what is going on. To dismiss his guest, Jesus, as an amateur, as an imposter, as someone who doesn't know his law, who's someone who doesn't know his, his story, who, who doesn't know what is going on here. Remember, just a few verses earlier, in response to Jesus' miracles, the people were declaring, surely this man must be a prophet from God. This is what they said whenever he raised the widow's son from, from death. Remember? Like he was dead, came back to life, and they said, surely this man must be a prophet sent from God. Now Simon is quick to say, this can't be the case. No way this guy's a prophet from God. He's got to know who this woman is. If he doesn't know who this woman, get, woman is, well, that shows he's not a prophet because he's not able to discern these things. And if he does know who this woman is, there's no way she would be at his feet with her hair down, which never happened in public for a woman. If she had, with her hair down, weeping on his feet, touching his feet, there's no way Jesus would allow this to happen. There's just too much shame involved. You see, in Simon's assessment, he's kind of telling on himself just a little bit. And it's something Jesus is going to pick up on in just a second. We'll get there uh, in, in just a second. But when this woman comes in, she is there to worship Jesus. She's there to worship him. There's no indication she looks in. It doesn't tell us how she got in there. It doesn't tell us if she just kind of forced her way in. It doesn't tell us if she kind of had to talk her way in, which there's no way she could have pulled that off. It's just like, it's like boom, she's there. She's there, and she is ready to, to, to do what she's got to do. She, she's overcome by the moment because she had to find Jesus. We're not even sure if the tears that she's crying are sorrow or joy. We don't know which one it is. My guess is it's probably both. The dinner party doesn't know either. But here's, what's, here's what I think is striking about this. The dinner party, Simon specifically, doesn't know if she's crying out of sorrow or joy, and he doesn't particularly care. He doesn't particularly care at all. You see, what, 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 he, what he sees there is not what, what she has done. It's not about the perfume. It's not about the crying. It's not about the foot washing. When he sees her at Jesus' feet, it's not about any of those things that are happening. And do you know why he doesn't respond to any of those things? You know, he responds to, he says, there's no way Jesus could be a prophet. I mean, I don't know about you, but if, if that were to happen in front of me, I think the first words out of my mouth, the first thought that I would have, it says he says it to himself, so I don't know if it's like audibly and Jesus hears him or if it's just even like in his head and Jesus kind of reads his thoughts. I don't know exactly how that happens. But I, just, I think my first thing would be like, oh my gosh, what is happening here before me? It would be an assessment of the situation, right? But that's not what happened. It's not an assessment of the situation right here for, for, for Simon. His first thought is about the person of 
Jesus in the sense of a, a, a criticism of who Jesus is. And do you know why it's not his first thought about the perfume or the crying or the hair or the foot washing or any of these things? It's because whenever he sees this, he does not see this woman as a woman, as a person. He sees her as a theological uh, problem to be solved. She is a test case. She isn't a person. She has no real value. Not just to him, but in a societal sense too. She carries no worth. She is only someone that can reveal that his, his assumptions about Jesus were correct. He has no interest in engaging her as a person on her inherent value. He has no interest in engaging her as a person in her emotions and what she is dealing with. None of those things. Her only value to him was how he can exploit this situation to his own advantage. And Jesus picks up on this. He sees what Simon is doing here, and he kind of tells on himself with that question. And he asks Simon if he can tell him a story. And Simon says, sure. And this is what Jesus says. This is verse 41. Luke 7, 41. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, denarii, and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. Then he said to him, you have judged rightly. This is not complicated, pretty simple. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Which to this point, the answer to that question was no. I mean, he saw a theology problem, not a woman. But now he says, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. So it would have been a a kiss of greeting. Put your hand on his shoulder, you know, kind of either cheek, a, a welcome, a sign of peace that you're welcome in my home. Simon didn't do this for Jesus at all. You gave me no kiss, but from the, uh, But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So just a quick note there. It wasn't her actions here that saved her. Her actions flowed from her faith. And that is what saved her. Okay? He says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus looks at Simon and he says, you see this woman as a theological exercise. You see me as a theological problem. What you don't see in either of us is any inherent value or worth. Our value is simply in what you can extract from us to make your theological point. It's why you didn't care for me whenever I walked through the door. Because I wasn't an honorable guest. I was a case study for your rabbi. I wasn't an honorable guest. I was a debate that needed to be settled. I wasn't an honorable guest. I was something else entirely. I was, I was a word problem in your theology debates in the temple. That's all I was to you, and that's all that she is to you. And I can almost hear Simon start to backpedal just a bit as Jesus tells his story. 
But the events have already taken place. He's already incriminated himself in the way that he did not care for Jesus whenever he walked through the door. Jesus starts to lay it all out for Simon. All the ways that Simon has been a poor and neglectful host. He lays all those things out and all the ways that the woman, the woman who, who is so scandalous and is full of, is just ill repute that, that, that has broken every societal rule, even though she has not done it the way that was societally uh, accepted, she has done it. She has done the right thing, whereas Simon, you tried to be polite to society and you neglected me in front of you. She has done the thing that needed to be done. You neglected the things that needed to be done. By all rights, Simon should have been the first to recognize and do these things because Jesus was a host in his home. By all rights, the Pharisee who knows the law, whenever he comes across the Messiah, the Pharisee should have responded in the right way to say, you are the Messiah. And yet you have the, 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 the sinful woman who shows up in Simon's house acknowledging the Messiah. It's a double whammy of what Simon should have done and instead what this woman who, sh- who, who should never even have come across the Messiah gets right. Jesus wasn't a person but a problem. He wasn't to be worshipped. He was to be kind of found out and exposed. That was the whole point. And I wonder how many of you listening this morning, here with us this morning, maybe listening on a, on a podcast, I wonder how many of you listening to this might not be followers of Jesus, and this is your thought process too, that Jesus is a problem to be solved, a person to be found out, even a teacher to kind of, kind of judge his teachings, maybe even apply some of them, but not a person to be worshipped. I wonder how many of you approach Jesus not as somebody to say, let me know this person, but let me instead solve this person. Let me use this person to my own agenda. And before you say, yeah, 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 all you, all, you, all you people far from Jesus, I just wonder how many of you, that is the whole reason Jesus is in your life. Because you're using him to your own agenda and your own purpose. That's the only reason Simon invited Jesus to the table, to eat with him. It wasn't to fellowship with him, it was to use him. For so many of us, this is what our Christianity looked like. I wonder how many of us how, how many of us would look at this woman and see what she did. And if you're wondering, like, wait a minute, I thought there was something else about like selling stuff to the poor and all that. Where's that in this story? That's a totally different time that, that, that something like this happens. We got, we got more of this that we're going to cover. This happens several times in, in the Gospels. But I think what, what I was continually struck at or struck by as I studied this, this passage is the way that Jesus treats this woman. He could have treated her as a problem. He's interrupting dinner. He could, have been trying to, he could have been trying to witness to the Pharisee. He could have been trying to correct the Pharisee's theology. He could have been trying to explain why he's the Messiah. All of these things he could have said, you know what? This woman is a problem for me right now. But he never does that. He just looks at her as a person who's overcome in the moment and worshiping at his feet. He has nothing to gain from her. 
Nothing. She brings nothing, literally nothing to the table. Nothing to gain from her and much to be lost. He easily could have been like, not right now, not in this place. Can you do this like later whenever we're like somewhere else? But he doesn't. He stops and he considers her. And then he turns and he talks to her. And he loves her. It just reminds me of the story we just looked at a couple of weeks ago. Whenever Jesus sees the widow who is crying and her son who is dead. And he has compassion on her. He sees her. This is what he does. Friends, if we are going to represent Christ to the world, we cannot see people as projects and as problems. We must see people as people. Full of value and worth. Not as political opponents. Not as, not as these things that we have to like constantly correct and, and fix. Don't, don't get me wrong. There is truth and there are things that we need to hold to. But we must see people as people. If you're walking with someone that is suffering, don't make them a theological exercise for you and trying to get your theology and their theology just right. Don't reduce them down to categories that you find to be valuable. If you are sharing the gospel with someone that doesn't know Jesus, they are not your project. Love them. See them. Listen to them. Find out where they are struggling. Find out what it is that keeps them from Jesus. Seek them out for who they are first. And then let let your theology feed your relationship. Don't let it be the goal of the relationship. Jesus' story makes it clear. Those that need a little forgiveness, love a little. Those that need a lot of forgiveness, love a lot. There's two types of people. We've talked about this a few different times. There's there's two types of people, and then there's kind of subcategories within these two types of people, right? There's two types of people. Those that instinctively feel their need for forgiveness, and those that feel nothing. In the first category, there's those that, 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 that inst- instinctively feel their need for forgiveness. You can call this whatever you want. You can call it their conscience. You can call it their kind of internal m- morality. You can call it societal expectations that have gone, gone wrong. You can call it whatever you want. I don't care what you call it. There's something inside of them that just won't shut up. They instinctively feel the need to fix something inside them that has gone wrong. There's something that they, they, they've got to soothe the ache of their hearts. And they will, search, they will search the world to shut that inside voice up. Those that they sense a need for atonement, that something isn't right with their hearts, that their lives don't sit well with their own kind of internal judgments, their internal compass, their, their, their own life. There's something that isn't right, and so they spend their lives trying to, to either make it right, or they spend their lives doing everything they can to shut that voice down. Those that try to make it right will search high and low for anything that will soothe them. Like, like Pepto, whenever you're sick, they just want to take it and make the pain go away. Some will find this in religion. 
They will pour themselves into the actions of morality and religious activity and they will cover it in sacrament and tradition and in so doing, they will find themselves caught up in a show of religion and, 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 and they, will, they will use that then, that show of religion to say, see, I'm not that bad of a person. Some of the Pharisees would be in this category. Some will take a healthy dose of like political activism. In fact, I'd argue that's why the appetite for politics is so ferocious in our country now. It is a religion in every tangible way. People are dying to soothe the the, the ache in their soul. And the primary outlet that our culture provides for them, this is whichever side, Democrat, Republican, whatever, whatever, it doesn't matter. This is the, 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 the primary outlet our culture provides is some sort of political action. We're told that if you take political action, then you've done a good thing we think if we can vote with others if we can persecute our political adversaries if we can somehow push through some piece of policy then we will have impacted the world and done something good in spite of the mess and the sin that we are and so we can we can hope that 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 some grander thing bigger than ourselves will, will kind of ease that pain for ourselves others will do it just trying to be good they want to be a good husband, a good dad, a good son, a good daughter, a good student, a good boss, a good employee. Just be good. Whatever the role, they just want to be good. We love these people. Right? You love these people. You want a good employee if you're a boss. If you're an employee, you want a good boss. You want somebody who's a good dude. You want a, you want a good husband. You want a good dad. You want these people. And to be frank, that is probably a lot of us in this room. And we think it's Christianity. And it's not. It's a little secular Pepto to ease the pain with church on Sunday. Christianity is not a call to be good. In the sense of just just be a good guy. And there's a thousand other ways, depending on your upbringing, where you live, what your community values are, that we will try to outdo our aching consciences. And then there's, 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 a, whole, there, there's a whole other group of people that will spend their whole lives with that ache that, that constantly is there, and they will do anything to numb that ache. So they'll do it by watching sports by drinking alcohol, by chasing after all kinds of things that our, that our culture provides to say, this will make it better. By getting an education, by, by, by chasing some, some mythical perfection and mis- mythical level of achievement that, that will make you say, now I am worth something because I have outdone this thing in my life. You can think of a thousand ways that you do. These become the overachievers. These become the the, the workaholics. These become those that that, that you you can't seem to top them in everything because they're good at everything. And the whole reason is because they just want to shut that voice up. This is why we, we entertain ourselves to death. As Neil Postman says, amuse ourselves to death. That's one category. Of people that will, will, will go in all these different ways to shut that inside up. And there's a second category that has a totally different problem. Their heart doesn't ache at all. These people are in very big trouble. 
Their heart doesn't ache at all. They have meticulously laid out their lives. They aren't trying to, to, to justify themselves because they don't think they have much to justify. They think they're pretty good. They look at themselves in the mirror and they're like, yeah, if everybody else would be like me, this world would be good. We'd be fine. They see themselves as not, not trying to achieve a standard, but as setting the standard. They don't struggle. If they misstep, they fix it and then they move on immediately. One group has an inside voice that won't go away. The other group has an inside voice that just doesn't seem to be there at all. The idea that they aren't enough is nonsensical to them. They think they're just fine. They've always been enough. This is, this is the rest of the Pharisees. Some of them are, are trying to be perfect in order to shut that voice up. Others think they are perfect and they have no voice at all. It seems to me that Simon, the Pharisee here, is probably in this second category. But I would ask you, which one of these would you be? What is it that you're trying to shut that inside voice up with? Or, when was the last time you heard that inside voice? When was the last time that you said, oh no, I'm in trouble. I've got to figure this out. And if the answer is, I can't remember the last time that I heard that, you have a big problem. And Jesus is the solution for both, but if you don't think you have a problem, then you will not respond. If you don't think you need to be forgiven a lot, then you will not love a lot. If you think you only need to be forgiven for minor infractions, then it's, it's the difference between having a... a, a, a like recognizing kind of where you are. Like if, 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 if your grandpa lends you a couple of dollars to buy a candy bar at the store and says, make sure you pay me back. And then you forget to pay him back and you're like, ah, grandpa, let that one go. It's no big deal. We'll let that one slide. And you just kind of move on. If that's your view of God, you will not have much respect for God. When he says, I forgave you for that, you'll be like, well, of course you did, grandpa. It wasn't that big a deal. Look at all the other things that I did, right? But if your view of God is that he is a righteous king and you have committed high treason worthy of, uh, uh, worthy of full punishment and death, and then the king says, you are forgiven, and not only are you forgiven, I will transfer that punishment onto my own son, then you will respond to that king in a very different way. What you think when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Because it will help you in how you love God. This woman understood what she had done. Simon had no idea what he had done. And it made all the difference. She, this woman came to Jesus. She had spent most of her life trying to numb herself to that inside voice. And it wasn't until she met Jesus that she finally knew how to have rest from that constant nagging of her soul. And she broke down and she wept when it happened. Simon the Pharisee, his voice tells him he's good. He's worked too hard to need this rabbi and his forgiveness. In fact, this rabbi could learn a thing or two from him. And maybe he does need God's forgiveness, but just a little bit. God will look over that with all the good things he's done. And what I keep coming back to is that Jesus sees each of them as people as a person he knows them well he knows simon better than he knows himself and he knows this woman better than she knows herself he knows their hearts he sees them as people 
He seeds you and me this morning in the same way. We are not categories. We cannot earn our favor if we just worship hard enough. This is not what happens here. She worships the way she does because she realizes her worth in the eyes of Jesus, which maybe she's never felt before. And it breaks her down and it leads her to tears. Simon stonewalls Jesus because he realizes, or at least he thinks, that his worth was always there because of what he had done and that he deserved the place in the kingdom that he thought he had. And it made all the difference. I'm going to close now with a quote. This is a bit of a heady quote here, so it's going to come up on the screen. It's from an author named K.J. Ramsey, and she, she writes this book. It's called this, this Too Shall Last. It's about, it's about grace and suffering. It's a really beautiful book. She's a very beautiful writer in the way that she writes, and, and, and this is what she says. I think it sums up what, what happens in this passage so much. It's kind of stuck with me the last few weeks. It says, What the weary and broken and secretly apathetic and pious alike need today is not more prodding to believe that God is good. In other words, it doesn't do any good for me to stand up here and just say, God is good, you must believe me. From cradle Christians, so those that were Christians from early days in their lives, to those flirting with entering the church's front door, from the poorest to the richest, from the cynic to the pastor, we all need to be captivated by a love greater than our guilt. We need to be captured by the story where individual effort melts in a rushing river of shared grace. We need water that flows when we are fragile, grace that girds when we are weak, hope that holds us when our hands are empty, holiness that hears and shatters our pride, and a faith far deeper and more mysterious than a mere affirmation that God is good. This is what we need so desperately. I mean, I just, I, there's so much in here I'd love to pull out, but just that, that holiness that hears and shatters our pride. Simon needed that. And Jesus tried to show him that. And a grace that girds when we were weak, this is what this woman needed. And Jesus knew that too. And he offered it to her and said, go, your faith has saved you. This morning, as we read this story, the, 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 the whole section here in Luke 7 is, is really kind of right at the end of this, this passage where they say, who is this man? Who is this man who says he can forgive sins? But really, this whole section in Luke 7 is summed up by that. I said that when we began Luke 7. It's asking the question, who is this man? This man who has authority but leads with compassion. This man who, 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 can, who can raise the dead, who shows compassion on the weak, who who forgives sinners, who is this man? This man is Jesus, and he is who we worship today. And so my question for you is, where do you fit in all of this? Are you Pharisee? Are you Simon? Are you the woman at Jesus' feet, fully recognizing your need for grace? Are you just some, some person at the dinner table, just kind of watching it all happen? Even though you got Jesus right there at the table with you. Let's pray. Father, this morning it is our confession that as much as we want to see ourselves and perhaps at times have seen ourselves as the woman at your feet that is, that is weeping and, and aware of our sin, we, 
we confess that we are far too ignorant of our sin. That too often we think of ourselves more highly than we ought. That we see people for what we can use them for, not for who they are. So Father, we confess and we repent this morning. We ask that you would show us grace, show us mercy, and convict our hearts and let us not walk away like Simon. Ignore what happens in front of us. But instead that we would be cut to the heart with the beauty and the grace of the gospel. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.